Well, y'all are in trouble because first hour, I know there's a second service I have to be done in time for. Not so with second hour. Uh, and essentially, I preached two sermons last hour, and I'm going to do the same because there's just been something weighing on my heart that I want to share with you just pastorally. I did not prepare this. In fact, I'd, I had determined I wasn't going to share this, and then I, I just couldn't escape it this morning. So before we look at our text in Ephesians chapter 4, turn with me, if you would, to the book of Hebrews. And as you turn there, I'll tell you why I, this is weighing on me. I'm pretty confident and, and comfortable saying that for any of us uh, in our generations, the, the church has probably not faced a greater danger than the church faces right now. I don't intend that to be a scary prospect for us. We know that Christ is Lord and he reigns over all things and, uh, and his church is safe in him. But I think there's a great danger before us that we need to consider. And, and part of the reason I, I'm, I'm sharing this is because, you know, at first the church well, really not just the church, the world went into quarantine. And we thought this won't last long, right? It was two weeks to slow the curve. How many weeks ago was that? And we talked a lot about when things were going to go back to normal. And we might be talking about when things might go back to normal for a long time. They might never go back to normal. I mean, at least not as we thought about them before. This is going to have an impact on us, on the church, on on the world. And so I think, it's, I think the church really needs to begin, to thinking, uh, begin thinking about what does this look like for us right now? If, we're not getting, if we don't get back to normal anytime soon, well, Hebrews has been weighing heavy on my heart. And so I want to share just a couple of things with you uh, pastorally. I, I do feel a little bit like I'm preaching to the choir because you're here this morning. And, uh, and so please um, just abide with me for, for a little bit. But Hebrews, I think Hebrews has two great purposes in its writing. Maybe more, but I think two main purposes. Number one, Hebrews is written to explain to us the supremacy of Christ. And, and uh, the, the author of Hebrews compares Christ to old covenant worship. And we're told that, that there's a better temple. The temple was built uh, in Israel as a place of worship. And we're told that Christ, his ministry is not in a temple built with hands, but his ministry is in the Father. We're told, or in heaven before the Father. We're told that um, he, there is a, not only a better temple, but a better sacrifice that, that day in and day out, the priests would offer up sacrifices and they would uh, kill bulls and goats and lambs and birds and burn up grain, all as offerings to, to God. And that all of these offerings pointed forward to what Christ would do, but his is not a sacrifice that is offered repeatedly, but that is offered once and covers all sin for those who believe in him. Not only is he a better sacrifice, he's a better priest. The priest would first have to offer sacrifices for their own sin and then for the sins of the people. They would get tired, they worked on shifts, they would sleep at night, and it was, it's not so with Christ. He does not have to offer a sacrifice 
Christ for himself. He never sleeps and never slumbers, but ever stands before us as our representative before God. He is better than the angels. His name is better than any other name under heaven or earth. And the beginning chapters of Hebrews are filled with language about God as Lord, or Jesus as Lord and God because he is God who came in the flesh. He has a better position as not only a son of God, but the premier son of God, having eternally existed as God's son. That's the first purpose for which Hebrews is written. The second purpose for, Hebrew, for which Hebrews is written is to warn us of the danger of falling away. It's to warn us of the danger of falling away from Christ. Now, I want to clarify that because let me ask you this question. What is the greatest evidence of our salvation? Not evidence, assurance. Well, no evidence, I mean. Yes, evidence, I'm sorry. What is the greatest evidence of our salvation? There are many assurances in Scripture. There are many evidences in Scripture. But what is it in your life that shows above all other things that you are genuinely a believer? I would say, according to Scripture, it is this, that until the day you die, you, are, you remain faithful in your belief to Jesus Christ. That's shocking maybe a little bit and hard for us to hear. I think Jesus, as he teaches in the parable of the sower, teaches us that fruit, not foliage, is, is evidence of redemption. Uh, when the sower goes out to scatter his seed, one is plucked up and shows no growth. Three, three of them show growth, but only one bears fruit. Well, very similarly, the, the author of Hebrews reminds us, starting at the end of chapter 5 and working his way through the beginning of chapter 6, of the danger of being associated with the church, experiencing the goodness of God through the church, and then falling away. And I don't believe that what the author of Hebrews is teaching us is that Christians can lose their salvation. I think what he's saying is that there's a great danger for those who believe they're saved and are connected to the church and experiencing the goodness of the church, but are not genuinely saved, or at least yet, we would hope and pray, of falling away. In chapter 6, verse, verse, starting in verse 7, the author of Hebrews reminds us that of, of that evidence of salvation being fruit. He says, for the land that has drunk the rain, that's the person is being compared to the land, the person who has experienced the graces of God, has experienced the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church, has experienced the, the word of God being preached prayer, all of those things, that is drunk in the rain that falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. So the life that receives the things of God and produces fruit is one who is blessed from God. But, verse 8, if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. In other words, mere association with the church is not evidence of salvation. You've probably heard it said, being in the church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in your garage makes you a Cadillac. It is the evidence of our lives, the outflowing of the work of our lives, the fruit of the Spirit, evidence in our lives. And then in verse 9, the author of Hebrews says, though we speak in this way, 
that there could be some who are associated with the church and then fall away, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. In other words, falling away from Christ does not belong to salvation, but staying faithful does. And so much of this book is given to that warning. Those two purposes, be careful lest you fall away and be revealed for a non-believer. We, we don't want these people to leave the church. We want them to continue to experience the grace and goodness of God and repent and believe. We want them to experience the preeminence of Christ over all things as, the, as much of the book of Hebrews points out. But having built those two cases up in the opening of Hebrews, we come to chapter 10, starting in verse 19, that says this, Therefore, brothers, because we have this great high priest, because he is better than everything else, and because through him we can draw near in confidence to God, the author of Hebrews has already made that case, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Now, stop there. I don't think what the author of Hebrews is saying is that when we die, we will then be able to enter into God's presence, though that is true, and we should have full confidence of that. I think what he's saying is here and now in the present, because of what Jesus has done, we can draw near to God by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through the flesh. But whether the author of Hebrews has in mind here life or death is irrelevant because he is certain that in this life and in the next, because of Jesus Christ, we can draw near to God in full assurance of faith. Let me ask you, do you have more fear of God or of falling away from his grace than you do of death or of COVID? Maybe we do, maybe we don't. I don't know. Verse 21. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. What a great thing that because of Jesus, our great high priest, we can draw near to God in full assurance of faith in this life or the next. And you know what? The only thing that death can do to you or I if we have trusted in Jesus Christ for our salvation is deliver us to Jesus. What a glorious reality. But that's not where he ends. Look at verse 24. It starts with and. And let us draw near to God in full assurance of faith. What is the natural outworking of drawing near to God in full, of, in full assurance of faith? It is this. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing 
What the author of Hebrews is saying is every day that goes by, every single day of your life and mine and in the life of the church that we get one day nearer to the return of Christ is another reason to not forsake the assembling of believers, that we need to assemble ourselves more tomorrow than we do today and more today than we did yesterday. Because being separate from the church, whether we're believers or whether it's a non-believer who is associated with the church, is spiritually dangerous territory. And I think one of the primary responsibilities given to God's shepherds, both in the Old Testament and the New, is to warn people of danger. And I feel like I, it's just been weighing on my heart. We have no idea if or when things will go back to normal. And this is an incredibly spiritually dangerous time. I want to be clear. I'm not saying that there aren't some people who are medically fragile and who should stay home. There are probably some among us who, for health reasons, should stay home. I'm not saying we should shuck off all laws and just do whatever we want either. All I am saying this morning is that I want the people of Trinity Baptist Church to understand what a spiritually treacherous place it is to be separated from the church. Lone sheep get plucked off by wolves. They get gathered up by other shepherds and put in flocks that are not their home flock. They fall off cliffs and die. Sheep will literally eat grass in one area until it's gone and they just keep eating dirt. They need to be brought into green pastures. They need led by still waters. A few weeks ago, as we started to talk about these one another's, and uh, I'll get going here uh, now shortly, I, I shared an analogy of um, this movie I watched, a documentary called Free Solo, about a guy who climbed uh, El Capitan for the first time without being hooked in, with no ropes, no harnesses, no nothing. One of the things I talked about in that sermon was the importance of not only being hooked into Christ, but being hooked into one another. And let me see if I can paint that picture for you. When climbers climb El Capitan, it's 3,000 feet up. A little more, something like that. They hook not only, they put on a harness, they hook a rope to themselves, one to one. Like if you and I are climbing, I would hook the rope to me, you would hook the rope to you, and then you would pray desperately that I wasn't the one who fell. Uh, and, and, and then what we would do is we would take that rope connected between us and we hook it into carabiners on the rock. Now it does no good to a climber to be hooked to each other, but not to the rock. If you're 1,500 feet up and you're hooked to each other and one person falls, as soon as the slack in that rope is gone, the other person's going down too. It also, however, does no good for me to put on my climbing harness and hook onto a rope and not hook to another climber and, go, and start climbing up this mountain and hooking into the carabiners as I go. Because what happens when I fall is the rope just pulls right out of the carabiner. I fall, the rope comes right out of the end of the carabiner, and I fall to certain destruction. There is only safety in being hooked to the rock, and to other climbers. And this is the way God has designed the church. We are designed to be connected to Christ. There is no life but by being connected to the vine. And when we separate ourselves from him, 
we are spiritually in dangerous places. But when we fail to connect to each other, to the local church, we are also in spiritually dangerous places. The natural outflowing of holding fast the confession of our hope is considering how to stir up one another to love and good works and not neglecting to meet one, with one another. I don't even know what I'm asking you to do about that, <laughs> especially because I'm, uh, we're all here, right? Maybe it's in our interactions. Maybe it's as we connect with people. Maybe it's in picking up the phone as there's somebody who you haven't seen in a while. I'll preach five services a Sunday. I don't care if that's what it takes to get everybody here. But, and some of you should stay home. I'm just going to say that. And, that, and that's okay. And, and I'm grateful for the technology that allows us to stay connected. But you know, the truth of the matter is, is in the people I talk to, the more they're separate from the church, the easier and easier it becomes to not watch, not meet together, to neglect all of these things that we're told not to neglect. I don't know if or when things will ever go back to normal, but I'm convinced of this. More now than ever, we need the church. We need each other, and we should be gathering together. Interestingly enough, you cannot live out any of the one another's without one another. And so let's turn our attention there. Hebrews chapter 4, again, as I stated when we started out this series, these one another's are designed to be lived out in the church. It's we kind of end up turning this on its head sometimes, I think, and that is, um, I think the church has bought in, and, and I don't want to be overly critical of this, it's not bad when the church seeks to love the world, but we've kind of developed this mindset that the better the church loves the world, the more the church is likely to be saved. I don't think Jesus ever says that. I don't think scripture ever says that. Jesus does, however, tell us that all men will know his, we are his disciples if we have love for one another, one for another. Now, that even is not a statement that just because we have love for one another that they'll become believers. Jesus doesn't say if you have love for one another, all men will be saved. He says they'll know who you belong to. And that's, that's our goal. But these one another's are, they're designed to be lived out in the church. So start with me in Hebrews chapter 4, and I hope we've all taken Pastor Edgar's admonition to heart last Sunday and that you brought your Bible with you. Starting in verse 25, Paul tells us, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. It seems to me like every time we begin to draw near to an election, 
Uh, I tend more and more to think and say that the world is short on kindness. I think it's really true. The farther we dig into our own positions, our own thoughts, the more we uh, separate ourselves from others, especially if they're not like us. It's easy to be mean to those who think other than us. It's easy for candidates to get on stage and yell at one another. It's easy to watch them get uh, desperate and exasperated when their microphones get shut off. We live in a world that is in short supply on kindness. And if you've ever been around people who are just kind, is there not extra gravity there? Like, this is a place I want to spend time. I can think of people or places where, where kindness was the norm, and they're the kinds of places that I want to be in. But the question before us is, what is kindness? Before we can talk about kindness, we have to understand what kindness is. So I looked up kindness in the dictionary, and the answer, the definition was not very helpful. Here it is. Kindness or kind is being of a good or benevolent nature or disposition. So I thought, okay, if that's what kindness is, how do we define benevolent, at least according to the dictionary? And the definition of, of benevolent was characterized by or expressing goodwill or kindly feelings. That being kind is expressing goodwill or kind feelings towards others. Now, that is certainly not wrong, but I don't think that that definition captures the idea of what it means biblically to be kind. In verse 32 here, where we are told to be kind to one another, the Greek word here is, is, is uh, from the same root as the word for grace. In fact, the word grace is its root. And and the word itself doesn't necessarily just mean of goodwill towards somebody. It actually means useful. It has connotations of useful or light. Specifically, it means easy to bear or easy to carry. Keep a finger in, Ma in Ephesians uh, chapter 4 and turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. This is a, an important passage here in Matthew. It is, in fact, the only place in all of the New Testament where we're told anything about the heart of Jesus. Let me ask you the question, what do you imagine the heart of God to be like? Demanding, exacting, austere, cold, distant? I don't know, what do you imagine the heart of God to be like? Jesus says, starting in verse 25, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. We see Jesus in other places, and this is a similar passage where he's saying, you know, I think it was Peter who says, when will you show the Father to us? And Jesus says, you don't get it. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. To see what I am like, because I have eternally existed as the Son of God, is to see what the Father is like. 
I think it's fairly common, even if we don't do so purposefully, to, to have this view of the Trinity, of, of this kind, gracious son, Jesus, who placates this austere and demanding and distant father. And Jesus says quite to the contrary, whatever you see in me is the exact reflection Greek, the, uh, I mean, not in Greek, in, in Colossians, the, the exact imprint, the, the icon, the exact image of the nature of God is found in Jesus Christ, that Jesus reveals the Father to us. Now, with that in mind, here's what Jesus says in verse 29 of Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Let's stop there. What qualifies you to come to Jesus? Is it the neatness of your life? Is it your sinlessness? Is it how put together you are? Is it your relative righteousness compared to other people? No, it's not. Jesus doesn't call the righteous. He doesn't call the put together because none of us are. Have you ever tried... To, to find and have and seek God's approval by your own righteousness, it's exhausting. It is an exhausting exercise. Because like Paul in Romans, the good we want to do, we don't do. The evil we don't want to do, we do. We get frustrated with ourselves. Nobody sees just how sinful I really am more than me. And no matter how much I get things right, there's 10 things behind it that I get wrong. And I just get more and more heavy laden trying to come up with my own righteousness. And Jesus says, if that's you, if that's the, what you're bearing, the weight of your own sin, the weight of the lack of your own goodness or righteousness, those are the people I want to come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. This yoke would be a wood beam hooked between two oxen. You've got this heavy load. You're telling me, Jesus, that when I'm feeling heavy laden, what I'm supposed to do is put on a yoke as though I'm supposed to do more work? And he says, yes, put on the yoke, but not to do more work. I have done the work. I will pull you through because my yoke, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, here's Jesus' heart, gentle and lowly. Humble and, and gentle. I, th I think maybe we miss this sometimes. When, when Jesus gives us this one golden moment here to, to reveal to us what he is like the most at his core, the God of the universe tells us not that he is exacting and demanding and harsh and vindictive, he is gentle and lowly in heart. And that when we yoke ourselves to that, what we find is rest for our souls. Why? Because his yoke is kind, easy. The same word we find in Ephesians 4.32. He is easy, kind, 
and his burden is light. Is it light? Was it a light burden for him? No, it was not. It's a light burden for us because he has borne the burden. And so what Paul is calling us to in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, is to be kind, to be easy to bear, to be light. Let me ask you, do those around you find you easy to bear? Do they find you kind and gentle and lowly? Or do they find us bitter, unforgiving? Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British preacher, said of this word, particularly in regards to Ephesians chapter 4, he said, the meaning is certainly the opposite of being bitter. But beyond that, the real meaning of of, of the term in its origin is to be useful to and to be helpful to others. We are to be easy to bear and helpful to others. There's another place this word gets used. Keeping a finger still in Ephesians chapter 4, turn with me to Luke chapter 6, verse 35, except we'll start in verse 32. Most of us are probably familiar with this most difficult of commands. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Verse 33, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But instead, in contrast, verse 35, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. What does he mean by you will be sons of the Most High? Is he saying that if you do all of these things, you will earn your own salvation? Not at all. We ordered Bradley a proud dad moment. Uh, I'm grateful to God for this. This isn't really a story about myself, but it illustrates this point well. We ordered Bradley a devotional this week. In fact, I'm going to bring it one of these Sundays and recommend it. It's a devotional that is designed for young kids that they can kind of do on their own, and it's uh, quite an excellent resource. But he was talking to Jennifer one day, and he, uh, he wanted a devotional so that he could get up in the morning and do his devotions like Dad. Sons have this great desire to reflect the character of their fathers. We want to be like their dad, like our dad's. Jesus is not saying that we earn sonship by behaving this way. What he's saying is your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High. He's saying when we do these things, when we love those who hate us, when we lend to those who won't repay, when we're kind to those who are mean to us, that is when we most, like sons desiring to be like their fathers, reflect the character and nature of the Most High. For he, that is God the Father, the Most High, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Do we understand God to be like that? To be kind and merciful even to sinners? What about wrath, Logan? Isn't God angry at our sin? When I screw up and I mess up, isn't God angry with me? Doesn't something well up in him that just wants to lash out at him like sadly I do towards my children at times? 
Well, I'm certainly not here to say that God isn't angry at sin. First Thessalonians chapters 1 and 5, like bookends on that book, talk about how Jesus, Paul in both of those chapters, says that Jesus saves us from the wrath to come. There is wrath. God is angry at sin. But in this life, here on earth, there's also what we call common grace, that the rain falls on the fields of the righteous and the unrighteous, that the sun rises on both sinners and saints, that in this life, God is gracious and patient and kind to both believers and non-believers. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, as we sang about this morning, reminds us that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance, not his wrath. Now, his kindness is always held up in view of his wrath, but it is his kindness, his easiness, the lightness of his burden that calls us to repentance. Did you catch what I'm saying? This is an incredible truth that we cannot miss. What is it that Jesus saves us from? Well, we have a lot of Christianese that we like to say, Jesus saves me from my sin. What does that mean? Jesus saves me from myself. But what Scripture is pretty clear about is that Jesus saves us from the wrath to come. And that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Romans 5, 8 through 10 is clear that while we were yet sinners, enemies of God, haters of God, Christ died for us. Here, l- l- let me see if I can put this in perspective. When someone sins against you, when, when they do something horrible to you, when they hurt you, maybe at the deepest level, when they make themselves your enemy, Think of that person in the world who you perceive to be maybe the most opposed to you. Do you sit around considering how you might turn your own anger away from them? Or like me, do you cling to your anger? Do you make excuses for it? Do you justify it? Oh, that person deserves for me to be angry at them. What Jesus saves us from is from the wrath of God. And it's not that Jesus is kind and God is exacting. The whole plan of redemption was set in in motion by God, his plan eternally to send his son to redeem us. The bottom line is that the amazing thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God saves us from himself. We made ourselves his enemies, God-haters, and he, we, he, he justly is angry towards our sin. But in his great love for us, he set forth a plan to redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He sent his son to live a sinless life that we couldn't live and then to crucify him. He didn't deserve to die. We deserve to die. And though he did not deserve to die, God sent him to the cross and poured out an eternity of wrath on his son in six hours one Friday afternoon. And then three days later, 
in victory, in vindication for the effectiveness of his work and that it was an acceptable sacrifice. He was raised from the dead three days later, offering us life. What is the kindness of God? Why is he easy to bear? Because he saved us not just from our sin and condemnation, but he saved us from his own wrath so that he could be both just and justifier of those who believe. Oh, that's such a better definition of kind than benevolent or with kindly feelings. But if you're like me, you hear about that nature of God and you go, I don't know how to be like that. That's a tall order. It is a tall order. And in order to understand what God is calling us to in Ephesians 4.32, or rather how to live that out, we have to, with great expediency, understand the context of Ephesians. Work our way. We're going to work our way very, very quickly through uh, the whole of Ephesians chapters 1 through 4. And I want to see that everything that God, I want us to see everything that God has made us and everything that God has given us in order to live this out. Did you guys see in the, the newspaper um, or online that, that there's a supercar that's being built in Kennewick that just broke every like land speed record for production cars? SSC is a Shelby supercar or something like that. Uh, they're building these things in Kennewick. They're only going to make 100 of them. Uh, its top speed it hit was 100, or 333 miles per hour. But um, it has to go two directions, so I think the official record is 316 miles an hour, and the, the driver said it could have gone faster, but the wind just didn't make it safe for him to keep pushing the car further and further. Now, that's a pretty incredible piece of machinery, but fuelless, it goes nowhere. It takes two things to, for a car like that to perform. Number one, it takes an incredibly built machine. And number two, it takes some good fuel in it. I actually used ethanol in this thing to get it up to that kind of speed, which is interesting. But nonetheless, an incredibly built machine with no fuel goes nowhere. And if you took that same fuel and put it in my Tahoe with 230,000 miles on it, you're not going to get 333 miles out of it, right? You can put all the good fuel in it, but you still need the right machine. Well, in, in similar fashion, I think what the picture that, that is being painted for us in Ephesians is that God has not only made us into everything we need to be, but he's given us everything we need to have to be the kind of people he wants us to be. So let's look very quickly at these. At the beginning of chapter seven of, or chapter one of Ephesians, uh, starting in verse three, there's seven points here that I want to make. That's where that number seven came from. It, it, we see first what uh, these spiritual blessings. I, I liken this portion of Ephesians to a bank account. It is our spiritual bank account, and here there are seven deposits made into our bank account. Verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has chosen us, or I'm sorry, he has blessed us with every blessing in the spiritual, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And here's where these seven start, verse four, even as he chose us 
in him. There's deposit blessing, number one, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Number two, in love, here's the second deposit, he predestined us for adoption, and there is the third deposit, that we have been adopted to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, that we have been actually made a part of his family. Now, deposit number four, we have redemption, verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood. Deposit number five, which is the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Verse nine, he has made known to us the mystery of his will. By the way, that making known the mystery of his will means that he's treating us like sons, not servants. And verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. How much has God fueled us up with? He has deposited into our lives every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Not only has he given us every spiritual blessing, he has taken us from spiritual death to spiritual life, chapter 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. He has given us every blessing. He has brought us from death to life, and he has made us one, chapter 2, verse 16, that he might reconcile us both, that is, those who are far from God and those who were near to God, in one body. What body? The body of Christ. I don't think we can underestimate the importance of the oneness of believers. How has he made us one? He has made us one by placing us in Christ. Don't try and follow along with me, but listen to how much Paul emphasizes this in these two chapters. Chapter 1, verse 3, he has blessed us in Christ. Verse 4, he chose us in him. Verse 6, he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Verse 9, uh, he made known to us the mystery of his will which he set forth in Christ. Verse 10, to unite all things in him. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Chapter 2, verse 1, here's the great contrast. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but verse 5, he made, that is God, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 7, uh, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near. Verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Verse 21, in whom, that is in Christ, the whole structure of the church being joined and held together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do we see how much Paul talks about this? Why is there oneness in the church? Because we have all been placed in Christ. This is why God is no longer angry with us. 
God can no more be angry with those who have believed in him than he is angry with Christ because we have been placed in him. This is why Paul says in Philippians that I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. His death becomes my death. His resurrection, my life, my sin, my, the debt for my sin became his, Colossians, and that it was canceled, uh, the record of my debt having been nailed to the cross with Christ. His righteousness now becomes my righteousness. I don't think I can underestimate the importance of the idea of being uh, of the oneness of all believers as we are placed in him. But Paul goes on, because of the oneness of all believers, chapter 4, he calls us to unity, chapter 4, verse 3, that we're to be a- eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Note he doesn't say create it, he says maintain it, because Christ created it when we were all, and we, we gained it when we were all placed in him. Verses 9 through 16, we won't look at them. He speaks of the giftedness of all believers. And then in verses 17 through 32, he talks about the newness of all believers. That we have been given every spiritual blessing, been taken from spiritual death to spiritual life, made one in Christ, unified in the church, gifted with everything we need. The the car is built, it's fueled up. He has made us into everything we need to be and given us every blessing that we need to have in order to be the kind of believers who, verse 25, put away falsehood and speak the truth, are members of one another, who get angry without sinning, who give no opportunity for the devil, who do do not steal, but rather labor in honest work and share with others who don't let corrupting talk come out of our mouths, but only that which builds others up as it fits the occasion, who don't grieve the Holy Spirit. I think that's interesting. We love to cherry pick this verse and says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. But notice that the statement is set in a massive list of sins of believers against each other. Why? Because in the previous chapters, Paul's gone to great lengths to explain how the Holy Spirit, because of the work of Christ, is building us into one church. Here's the image. You're building a house brick by brick, and I come along and I start tearing bricks down. Would you be grieved? Of course you would. And when we lie and steal and cheat and don't work honestly, and when we speak rude things and gossip and backbite and slander one another, as the Holy Spirit is building this temple stone by stone, we come along and we start ripping them down. That's what it means to grieve the Holy Spirit. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's great, Logan. The car's built. This is who God has made me. He's fueled it up, but I don't know how to drive it. (laughs) Because at this point in the sermon, if you're like me, I'm still thinking that's great in context, but how do I do that in reality? Well, Let's quickly turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and we'll wrap up here. How do we become this kind of people? I think Paul gives us the answer to that here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now as you turn there, 
uh, we're going to look at the very end of the chapter. The context is that Paul is, is talking about people, unbelievers in Israel, who had the law, they had the Old Testament, they read it, they did not understand it, they didn't know what it meant, and, and, and Paul's saying, we're kind of like that. There's this veil over our face, and when we look at the scripture, we don't see what is really there. Our minds are hardened, our hearts are hardened. Verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, now what do we see when our faces are unveiled? We see Jesus Christ. Verse 18, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, that is, we are beholding, we're looking at, we're treasuring, we're seeing the glory of Christ, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. Here's the principle. We become what we behold. What we spend our time looking at, thinking about, treasuring, seeing, it will define who we are. If you spend all of your time thinking about yourself, your situation, your circumstances, your goodness, your badness, whatever it may be, you will quickly become a narcissist. If you spend all your time watching Fox and CNN, you're probably quickly going to become a hopeless skeptic. If you spend all of your time looking at pornography, you're going to be a pervert. If you spend all of your time staring into the scripture, seeing a God who is austere, demanding, exacting, unforgiving, still angry, and not kind, and humble, and gentle, and lowly in heart, you'll be so dogmatic that you can't be kind to anyone. That's not the Jesus that is presented to us in Scripture. We're presented with a Jesus who is humble and lowly. We're presented with a Father who is kind towards those who hate Him, who rescued us while we were yet sinners, whose kindness leads us to repentance. And what do we become when we behold that God in His Word? Glorious, from one degree of glory to another. How do we become the kind of kind, honest, hardworking people who are easy to bear? We spend a lot of time looking, thinking, talking about Jesus Christ and with Jesus Christ. I've said it before, I'll say it again, two phrases that have been incredibly helpful to me, dusty Bibles always lead to dirty lives. When we ignore this book, when we fail to look into the face of the glorious Lord, our lives start to become a mess all around us because we become what we behold. This book will keep us from sin or sin will keep us from this book. But when we pick this up and we look in Jesus Christ's face and behold his glory, we cannot help but be transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. What occupies your time, your thoughts, your, your, your time on TV? What gets more attention, Netflix 
or scripture. I'm not saying Netflix is bad or TV is bad or Fox or CNN or any other, uh, other, I'm not saying watching news is bad. I'm simply saying that we become the balance of what we behold and we must behold primarily Jesus Christ and let everything come from that. What happens when we behold Jesus Christ? Well, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read to you the very next verse in Ephesians after verse 32 of chapter 4, which just happens to be chapter 5, verse 1. Here's what it says. I'll include 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Sons who want to be like their father spend time with their father. Christians who want to be kind like Christ spend time with their heavenly father. And when we see his kindness towards sinners and towards us, it flows out of us in kindness and gratitude for what he has done for us. We become imitators of God as beloved children. Heavenly Father, may may there be such a family resemblance between us and you as we behold your goodness and your greatness. Lord, we do not deny that there is wrath to come. We do not deny that you are a holy and a just God who who cannot stand any injustice or sin. But we also confess that in great kindness, You sent your son to rescue us from your wrath. Lord, we we can't even begin to express the gratitude you deserve for saving us from your own consequence to our sin by taking that consequence upon yourself. Lord, may we not be Christians who present a picture to the world only of a God who cannot tolerate sin, but of a God who loves sinners so deep as to pay the price and the penalty for our sin. Father, that is a love and a kindness that is far beyond our comprehension. May we be like you. May we reflect your character to the world around us. And may, we, may, may it start in our own hearts and lives where, where we understand your kindness towards us in redemption. That we might be imitators of you. And that we might not only be easy to bear by the world, but useful to you in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world around us. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.